You are listening to the message by Antioch Centre for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. And I want us to go right into the Word tonight. The title of this message is The Lord's Cup, God's Perspective of Communion. And uh, I, of course, was thinking a lot today and over the last the last few days about this subject and also about the subject of rituals or things that we practice. There, are, of course, in Christian tradition, there are many different practices that we have in the Word of God that we see, uh, one of which is, of course, the Lord's Supper, communion, that we do that. It's done different ways in many different churches, but it is something that is expected of us to do as we come together. And I want to talk about that tonight, but also there are other rituals. We know that some people do feet washing as a ritual in churches, and they take that also from a passage. I'm not always convinced that that's exactly what Jesus wanted us to do, but it is a good way to commemorate the principles that he was he was doing or what he was explaining. Uh, another physical thing that we do, although we're very spiritual, is we anoint with oil. That's a physical thing, and it is powerful. I've seen great things happen through the anointing of oil, and uh, we don't always do it, but there are times if someone is sick, the Bible says, call the elders and anoint with oil to bring healing. We know that when Jesus sent his disciples out in their first moment, it says they went and they anointed people with oil and saw miracles. So that's an important thing, and we'll talk about that another day and another time as we kind of consider different Christian practices and rituals and uh, find the, the validity behind it all, and more importantly, appreciate it for what it is, because we don't want to miss the meaning. And that really is the whole theme surrounding the Lord's Supper and what Paul wrote. He didn't want us to miss something that was available to us, the benefits of the covenant, because later we'll see that he, in fact, noticed some people were missing that they were not appreciating the body and the blood of Christ, and so therefore they were going to sleep prematurely, it says, which means they were dying early from sickness and disease and other issues, and God doesn't want that. God wants to heal us. He blesses our bread and our water, takes sickness out of our midst. It's what he said about the Israelites, and that extends to us in covenant today, and by his stripes we are healed. We know that. But concerning the cup specifically, this word, I noticed that anytime Jesus spoke about the cup, the theme of it in connection with the Lord's Supper was unity. It was the body of Christ being one. It's us coming together. And in this, I want to focus on that. But first, an introduction. Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. So he's referring to, of course, the coming of Christ. And as we move toward the end times, very interestingly, I was uh, doing a study on self-love and the, the ideas of it's actually not been around very long. If you look at the history of time, uh, psychology only came up with it in the last 130, 140 years. Before that, it was not a concept commonly known outside of narcissism and narcissists, you know, in uh, Greek, uh, Greco-Roman uh, ideas, mythologies. But um, the Bible says in the end times, 
men will become lovers of themselves. We've talked about that on and off. We see that we are coming toward the end. So I agree with this passage. More than ever before, we need to be a part of a church. Also, more than ever before, I see the enemy cutting people out of the church. I see the enemy picking people out of the fold. Uh, doing whatever he can to break them from that connection. And this is really important that we understand the power of that connection and specifically what Jesus teaches also. John seventeen twenty says, My prayer is not for them alone. This is Jesus talking to the Father about the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So here Jesus is speaking more in prayer to the Father about this unity. John 13, 34 says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus came to establish a social gathering of souls that we call the church. He invented the concept of the church in name when he said it for the first time. And the power of this group, that is the church, is the unity in it. So anything that we do towards unity, anything that we do toward connecting people in the body of Christ, we are, in fact, fulfilling the mission of Christ, the love for each other, the care for one another. And we will find this to become very challenging. In fact, it's the number one target of the enemy. He always wants to bring division. It's also instinct of the flesh to divide. Uh, three, three-fourths of the works of the flesh in the list are about partisan thoughts, ideas, separations, schisms, divisions. And so we see that often happening as well. And our witness really is important because the people are looking at the church, they're looking for that kind of unity as evidence of Christ with us. So Jesus mentions really a cup often as a symbol of that unity and community. And I want us to contemplate this mentioning of the cup to teach us about what the Lord's Supper is all about. Because as I looked into it, I found that the core issue of the Lord's Supper is about the unity of the body of Christ. And that's what Paul really speaks about. So in going deeper and looking at what Jesus referred to as his cup, we see some important things. In short, uh, this, this, it's an introduction to the Lord's Supper. I would say that uh, it's all about unity of community. It's about oneness. And in this message, I want us to look at five things about the Lord's Cup. I'm going to be interested in hearing this. Good. You received this message uh, as I bring it to you from what God has spoken to my heart. And I pray that it find open ears. Very interesting subject. Number one, the cup of the will of the Father. I want to talk about that in Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those 
for whom they have been prepared by my Father. So here as we consider this first one, the fact the cup is the will of the Father, uh, it, in this passage, it's interesting, Jesus mentioned the suffering and price he must pay as the cup he had to drink. He had a mission, he had a purpose, and that purpose was to do the will of the Father, and that purpose would mean that he would go all the way to the point of death, and even a horrific, uh, a torturous death, sacrificing himself or being offered as a sacrifice on the cross. He knew and was aware of that early on, and he was already telling his disciples they didn't have ears to hear it. But now that these two want to take these positions, or the mother is trying to uh, get favor for them to be in these great positions of honor in the kingdom, they don't quite understand the fullness of what it means and how you get to a place of importance in the kingdom. And Jesus mentions it as a cup, this suffering, this thing that you have to go through. And he asks, you know, are you able to do this? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Will you be able to pay the price even to death is what he was asking, or at least to suffering. And Jesus said, you will indeed drink my cup because they, they answered, yes, we can. I think they prematurely answered, not really getting the fullness of what he was talking about because they were eager to just do whatever. They, were, they would make rash vows and say things. All of them said, we will follow you even to death. And of course, they all abandoned him and ran away. It's just our nature to be emotional and commit. But then later, when the actual cup drinking comes, it's a little difficult to put the cup to our lips because we are not insane. We don't want to suffer. Nobody's choosing suffering. God has given us the instinct of self-preservation. But there are times that we will have to go through things that are symbolized in the scripture by drinking from the cup. Now, if you have a church like the early church, you will find that it's a lot easier to gain unity in that body. Why? Because they share a cup, a cup of suffering. I have worked in areas where there's greater persecution. I've worked in churches around the world where there was a lot of resistance. I've been in India. I've worked in village churches. I've been in Indonesia. I've seen the unity of the brothers in Laos and the way those pastors related to each other. I've seen people in many countries where it's difficult. And when you speak about people in the church and unity in the church, it's not a topic they preach on because they don't need to preach on it. And it's interesting to note, the reason is because they all have the cup in their hand. And the cup causes unity. Because they're willing to pay the price and suffer, it doesn't matter. In fact, a kind of a giddy warmth comes over them. I've heard this said a few times of people that were in very difficult positions in persecuted realms. They said, they all have this thing that they say, when it actually happens, when you're in that position, there's this kind of a joy that comes over you. And that's what Jesus meant. Rejoice when you fall into these trials, these testings, because it's a good thing. Why? Because it's causing there to be unity. It's causing a unification of souls together. And so we see the symbolism already. And the more difficulties and trials that we endure, the closer we become. And those people who have lived hard times together are, in fact, unified beyond those that have not. It's not true. It is true. Think about it. In wartime. You see these old guys talking about when they were in, the, and they will see each other and just break down and start crying. And these things, these moments, I was watching recently Ken Burns, the Vietnam War 
uh, documentary, very interesting. And the veterans are there talking about moments and some of these guys about things that they saw and the unity that they had with these comrades in arms because of the suffering they went through. It usually surpasses that of just regular relationships because of the same principle. And so in this principle, we see that the symbolism of the Lord's bread and cup is an acceptance of that suffering. When we partake in the cup, when we break the bread together, we need to understand that we're saying, I am willing to take your cup, Lord. And if we stand shoulder to shoulder with people also willing to do the same thing, it causes a bond and a togetherness that will help us to be able to have that unity that we're seeking. So when we avoid the cup, however, which some people might, the cup of suffering, we avoid the very process that unifies us. And that's where we need to consider. Number two, the contents of the cup are what matters, not the cup itself. And what I mean by this is a mention of this passage, Matthew 23, 25 through 26. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. So a lot of people focus on the outside of the cup, uh, but we see that it's what's inside the cup, what the cup contains that really matters. The Lord's cup in ritual is not really what matters. The Lord's cup in symbolism, when we focus on why we're doing it, is what matters. I've been in many church cultures around the world where they, they celebrate the Lord's Supper in some ways that Kind of, I don't feel that they're really grasping the fullness of what it means. They just do it as a, a formal ritual to basically check a list and say, we did this first Sunday of every month, we must do this, and they feel good about doing it. There's nothing wrong with doing it, but I kind of questioned it through the years because I saw this ritualistically in Mexico. In Mexico, basically, they just took the same concept that they had in their the mother religion of that nation, Catholicism, and they just brought the same principles. I grew up Catholic so that we had the Eucharist and the breaking of the little bread that the priest had and then gave to us in the drinking of the cup. And it was all about the ritual. The focus was all on the actual ritual and like somehow that ritual or the physical content. In fact, there was that transubstantiation doctrine uh, stating that that little piece of wafer actually truly physically became the body of Jesus. And you had to believe that you were putting a piece of Jesus in your mouth in order to, has to receive that. Well, that's not really accurate because it does not physically become that. And so when you find these extreme ideas, you find that people are more interested in the cup than anything else. There's a passage I look at, Matthew 23, Woe to you, blind gods, you say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it. I'm by the one who dwells in it. 
And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. And this is an address by Jesus to the Pharisees, because, you know, when he came to earth, he was looking to fix the problems with ritualisms. He was trying to get the heart to understand in a sincere conviction about these things. And we find that if we overfocus on the ritual itself, we have a tendency to miss the spiritual value of it. And Jesus took, took um this into question and addressed it with the Pharisees that you guys, you say this, this, and this by your traditions, but actually you're missing the point. And so I think it can be the same as he's talking about the cup. We need to consider what the cup is, what the Lord's supper is. Number three, the cup of thanksgiving for the blood. I know this, one of the strangest things in Christianity is how much we talk about the blood. I remember seeing this interesting interview with non-churched, non-Christian Americans that this uh, Christian comedian, he's actually a really cool guy. He got this group of just people, some people like at a college and these are non-Christians and he sat him down and he used some Christian terminology to see if they understood what it meant. It's very funny. It's on YouTube. And one of them was, he had them on a card, like phrases we use. One of them was, it's under the blood. And they went under the blood, like, like blood, like they couldn't comprehend it because you can mention the blood, but if you don't understand the importance of the blood, it means nothing but blood. And it sounds really scary. In fact, that's what these guys said. They're like, that just sounds scary, man. Like the blood, you're going to have the blood on you. They didn't get it. But we get the symbolism of it going all the way back to Egypt and to the Passover and the blood that they put on top of the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. We understand this, and then we apply that to the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. He shed his blood so that when we receive the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus, it is on us in symbolism, just like that we do not have physically right now blood on us. Uh, and if suddenly blood appeared on me, I think most of us would be petrified at something like that. But it is the spiritual idea of the blood. So we see again, once again, the cup is meant to symbolize the blood of the covenant. I want to read the passage here in 1 Corinthians ten fifteen. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. We cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Now here, of course, Paul is dealing with a culture in Corinth of people who were intermingling all kinds of religious principles from the past. I just mentioned this a moment ago about what I saw in Mexico. So even in the Christian churches in Mexico, it was very easy for them to take the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, and, and make it into something that was focused entirely on the physical. And they did it and enjoyed it. And I, and I see this in many different countries. But here we're talking about it as being a thanksgiving for the blood. So the cup is qualified through our sharing life together. The symbol of unity continues displayed in the ritual of partaking in the cup and the bread. 
that we do this together. And this passage is referring to participation in pagan rituals involving idolatry from before. Because in pagan rituals, also food is eaten. You can go to virtually any temple and get food that's been offered to the gods. If you're hungry enough right here in Singapore, you can go right here in Bishan to the big temple. They will feed you. And I know people who have said that in their times where they did not have money or the ability to find, they could go there and be fed and eat. But part of that is the ritual of the religion offering that food to idols. And so Paul ran into the same thing, and he was trying to cause there to be a divergence. So really, Paul was using the principle of the cup and the bread that Jesus talked about and mentioned as an object lesson, if you would, to get people to redirect their affections and their, their, their flavor or their hunger for power to come from the right source. Because they formerly were looking at what Paul called dumb idols, uh, these things made of stone and wood, and trying to get something from that. And so even in conjunction with food offered to it, they were eating food hoping that somehow the food itself would contain some type of blessing. And I want to bring this to mind also, when we partake in the cup, the food itself is not doing anything. It's just food. It's just bread. It's just whatever we're sharing. And so we keep that in mind. It is the redirection of our conscience away from the dead things of this life to the life-giving source of the fountain of the blood of Jesus that comes from the cross. And we focus on that. From that, we receive life. From that, we receive cleansing. And we're grateful for it, so we give thanks for it. The cup of thanksgiving is for participation in the blood of Christ and the sacrifice of the cross. And the scripture points toward the fellowship of believers in unity. So the ritual of communion is to remember the blood and its power. And that's what we do. We remember what Jesus did. We, it's, it's a time of remembrance. And this theme is further clarified by Jesus in other passages that we won't go into right now. We talk about, number four, the cup of sacrifice. Here he says, Matthew 26, verse 36, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Now, I want to help out the disciples here a little bit because when we read this, it just seems so selfish of them to be taking a nap at such an urgent time. But if you really understand about what spiritually is happening at this moment, you'll know why it specifically says their eyes were heavy. The reason that they were so tired, 
and their eyes are heavy is because of the darkness that descended on that garden in that moment. You have to understand that the accumulated iniquity of all sin, past, present, and future, was concentrated in being put into the body of Jesus. And imagine the weight of that. And so they felt the darkness of it. I mean, you can go to a place where maybe crimes have been committed or it's dangerous, and you know you feel that feeling that dark feeling. Imagine that, but multiplied many times over. This had to really have been a hard experience. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing, the cup, and about the cup. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Of course, at that moment, when Jesus stood up and they all stood and there comes Judas Iscariot with the temple guards and betrays him with a kiss. And uh, the first moment that they, they ask, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He says, I am. And boom, they all fall down because he said, I am, as in Jehovah. When he said that, power knocked them down. They got back up and then they, I don't know how they had the courage to ask a second time. But somehow they mustered up enough courage. And he says, well, you know, I already said it. And so then they took him and arrested him. Of course, he yielded to that. At any moment, he could have walked away. At any moment, he could have called those 60,000 angels uh, to come and take care of things. But he chose to accept the cup. And Jesus mentions this cup three times in this passage. This was to enforce the concept thoroughly. He made it clear that the participation in the cup of suffering and sacrifice was not his desire. He didn't want to do this. And there's nothing wrong. If you ever feel like, well, you know, I don't really want to suffer. Like I said earlier, that's fine. That's a good thing. That's mental health. Nobody wants to. Jesus was not insane. And he's not expecting you to be insane. But in the light of sharing a cup of price that we pay for people, for the work of God, for one another, uh, for our husbands and our wives, for our children. Sometimes we have to take a cup of sacrifice. Sometimes we cannot do what we want to do or be what we want to be or fulfill the desires that we have dreamed up for ourselves. And we have these great ideas and these great plans. And you have to be careful about the cup in this regard. If you are caring for people and you're laying your life down to serve people, which is a fulfillment of the law of Christ, to love your neighbor as yourself, then God honors it and sees it. But the temptation will always be for you to not take the cup. And a lot of people choose not to. So we need to understand that life with Christ and unity in the body will require that we share the cup of Christ. And this is a cup of sacrifice and unity with one another. And the ritual of communion displays the need to suffer together and carry one another's burdens. The unity that forms is the connection to one another and a spiritual accountability that we start to be concerned about one another. Therefore, if you have a problem, it's my problem. If you are depressed, I feel depressed. Conversely, if you are happy, I will feel happy. If you have joy, I should rejoice with you. We should walk in the unity and the love of Christ. 
and the ritual of communion, the partaking in the bread and the wine, it makes us understand that we are together. It's a connection. It's a ceremony of unity and the recognition of what Jesus died for. Jesus died so that we could be saved and be brought into one collective, one group, one family, one kingdom, all in unity. And that's exactly why he paid the price for us. And so he asked them, are you still sleeping and resting? Jesus asked an important question. Sometimes we fall uh, asleep spiritually. Sometimes we fail to wake up to the fact that life in Christ is dedication to one another. Sometimes we go to a church or we go to uh, do something spiritually and it's more like an involvement in a social group. And we may not always appreciate the connection that we need to have, the oneness that we need to have. And so this requires sacrifice and service. We esteem each other as superior. And the cup of the Lord should remind us of that. Number five, and this is the, the last one, uh, the cup of community. And there are two realms that I'm going to look at here. And the first is with Christ. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. Now, this is Jesus. And he's talking to his 12 disciples in, at the Lord's last um, meal together with them. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now here they, the cup was used by Jesus to connect his disciples with the sacrifice of his blood that was about to take place for all humanity. And he was making it clear to them here as he used this cup as the symbol of his blood. The cup did not actually have his physical blood in it. It was a, it was a memorial of what was taking place. Uh, the covenant was marked by that blood. This is called blood covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So this is the last supper he had and drank this, knowing that the next time he would have it would be the last supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we all end up together. And you say, well, what about him on the beach that day that he ate fish? Yeah, he was there, but we don't know that he had wine. It doesn't say that he had wine at that moment. He specifically says the fruit of the vine. And so that also is connected to the vow of the Nazarene or the Nazarite vow that Jesus, when he entered into that place of priesthood to do what he did, he took a vow of separation and so that he could fulfill that. Why? Because he ever lives in the order of Melchizedek, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for he is our high priest. And the high priest in service, in this case, he separated himself. But the time will come that he will end that service and he will no longer be an intercessor for the people of the world or for us because we'll be united. We don't need to intercede if we're there with him. So we will be present with him. We'll see him as he is. And before that time, however, we need to stick together, have unity in the body. Uh, they sang together to do that. It's a very important thing. This is the only place in the Bible that it says anything about worship with Jesus and the disciples. Nowhere else does it say they were singing songs. Isn't that interesting? This is the only place 
At this moment of the blood and remembering the sacrifice, it says they sung a hymn, an actual written song. Everywhere else they prayed. They were always praying. But rarely does it mention that they were worshiping together. Now, we could suppose they probably were often also singing songs together. We know in the book of Acts, the disciples sang songs in the prison cell in a time of duress. And they sang a hymn to the Lord, same thing. And that the angel come and shook the place and set them free. That was with Paul and Silas. And they were singing to them. They were worshiping, although they had been beaten and bleeding and hurting. But here, Jesus, in this moment, uh, they together sang a hymn. And then they went out to the Mount of Olives to await that fateful moment. So here we see with Christ this connection because it's the cup of community. We have communion with Christ. Our communion with Christ is connecting to everything he did for us, all of the sacrifice that he did, and they sang this. And worship really is a big part of understanding it. The second dimension is with the church. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 19. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. All right, now, he starts off with, look, guys, you're messing this up. You're not getting this right. And I'm expecting you to have community and oneness, but something was wrong with their perspective of the cup. And as he's saying this, it's interesting. Uh, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Uh, this means that he so expected the church to be totally unified that he discarded the gossip about divisions among them. And they can't be. There's no way they would do that. But of course, they were doing that. And to some extent, I believe it. So he's being persuaded, and that's where he has a bone to pick with them. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, in referring to this, these differences, God's approval, have to do with the empowerment of spirit, the anointing, so that there can be a basically laity and clergy, separation of those who speak forth the oracles of God under the anointing. You can take people and put them before an audience of God's people, and they can open their mouth, and there's virtually nothing of value coming out of it. It's good words, but they, it doesn't have a spiritual weight to it, whereas other people have the anointing, and this marks those which have God's approval to be his spokesperson or his teacher or his director in a given time. So he's saying, yeah, no doubt there has to be these kind of differences. One has to be more anointed than another, but there are. there's another reason that we are together. He says, so then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Uh, here, of course, getting drunk because they were drinking real wine in these, in these celebrations when they were together. And what this means, instead of sharing the wine equally, one guy bellied up to the bar before the others could and just took a lot more wine, and he's drunk. And tipsy, praise Jesus, hallelujah. And he's having a great time. But there's others that get up there and there's empty cups because this guy drank up all the wine. That's not what is meant to happen. There's supposed to be an equal sharing. The very word koinonia. 
which is fellowship. It means equal sharing. It means we count how many people are in this room, and then we take the cake and cut it into exactly equal portions so that each of us get an equal portion. And you say, well, what if it's a small cake and there's a lot of us? Then your portion will be tiny. It does not matter how big the portion is. And if it does to you, Paul is mad at you because you're totally missing the point. And that's why, for instance, here in our church, when we have our meals together, I, in fact, see our meal together as our communion. It's a small amount of food. It's more about the purpose of us being able to have a little food together, a little bit of drink. Most of us go home after this and eat anyway, right? And that's okay. We're not here to get full. It's the, the covenant of the food shared together that's so important. And so it says here that some get drunk. Uh, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Of course you do. You have stuff at home. Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So here we see people that were in the church of that day that did not have any other food. Some of them didn't have food at home. If somehow somebody were here and we could discern, and you can discern that, that they truly are hungry. And maybe they don't have a lot of money. And they're not, don't we all just kind of not take or take less? We don't point it out, well, you must really be hungry, but you don't have food at home. Here, have my portion. No, we kindly just leave more for others. Why? Because of love. Because it is a laboratory experience, an experiment in the manifestation of your love towards someone to show that you care so much about them you would rather see that they be satisfied and filled and happy and it gives you in a symbolism in a moment of food an opportunity to do that and that is what jesus is looking for he's looking for our unity and as we do it he is wanting so so far we're covering this the most detailed um writings about the lord's supper Certainly not in this matter. He says, I'm not praising you because there's disorder in it. But he goes on to describe and tell us in more detail exactly what we're supposed to do. So he's bringing correction to the church. This is where you're going wrong. But now he says it's about remembrance. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Now, this is interesting. He said, I received from the Lord. How much time do you see Paul hanging out with Jesus in the Bible? Uh, never. The only time he met Jesus was in the light in the road to Damascus. So after he had fellowship but in spirit with Jesus over an extended period of time, during his 14 years of spiritual development before his first journey even took place, in that time, he received a lot of specific revelation from Jesus by means of the Holy Spirit. And these are one of those things. So Paul has a very unique perspective about his churches because his churches were so unique compared to those of the way. And one thing they uniquely did was their form of understanding of this. And so Paul, being a teacher, teaches it here. He says, this is what I'm passing on to you. I'm going to tell you what the Lord told me. This is my conviction from the Holy Spirit is this, and I want to share it with you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, for remembrance, to not forget it. If we take every opportunity of eating in fellowship as a moment to remind one another, remember the introductory scripture that we looked at spurring each other on? Uh, we are required to remind one another provoke one another to do good works and to live the right way and to do the right things and to be more like Jesus in everything that we do. And this is what Paul is talking about. The communion is a moment to remember that and come together and highlight the fact that the body and the blood of Jesus was given so a sacrifice so that we could be together in unity. So if there's division related to this ritual something's off balance. And that's what Paul is talking about. So he goes on, we can ritualistically participate in this cup, missing the purpose of it, if we're not careful. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now I want you to understand what sinning means. It means missing the mark. It means missing the point. It's not valuing it, to, to um, not appreciate it, that is to place a value on it. If you do it just in ritual, and somehow the very ritual itself, or the physical bread, or the physical wine, is the thing that you believe is helping you, well, that is a manner unworthy of it. Then you're missing it. And that is also why there will be issues or problems later as a result. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat, of the bread and drink from the cup. And he tells you what this examination means. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, some religious people have decided that this means that if you have sin in your life at all, when you eat the bread and drink the cup, then that sin in you and this ritual, some are going to have a, a toxic reaction and it's going to curse you. But see, that is not what this is saying. It's saying the judgment that comes upon you is by means of your lack of discernment because you're not appreciating what Jesus did on the cross. If you don't appreciate and understand the importance of the body and the blood of Christ, how can you ever place a demand on the benefits of it? How can you ever say the blood truly is washing me? I am free and my sickness and my disease is healed because of what Jesus did for me. I believe this. I know it. I remember it. I rehearse it. Some people get so tired of hearing about the blood, the blood, the blood. But I, we even had a song in the 1980s in our church that was reminiscent song, the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood. We sang that song, the blood, the blood, the blood that was shed for me. One day when I was lost, Jesus died on the rugged cross. The blood, the blood, the blood shit for me. And that seems extreme. But I'm telling you, my foundation, my understanding of the blood of the blood of Jesus Christ is secure. Because they drilled it in. The blood, the blood, the blood. We, every service practically, we had at least three songs of the seven that were had that blood in it. 
because blood covenant was so important. The understanding of it was so important. We tend to want to shy away from that because it just sounds gross, but that would lead us into a place of not discerning it. And this is what it says. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why, for this reason, because they're not discerning, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Of course, he means death. So he's saying, you guys in the church, some of you, you got all these ailments. You have sickness. You have disease. You have to understand that this guy here, Paul, he's living in an era where Peter's shadow is healing people and aprons from his body are going out and touching and they're getting healed. This is There's an era of absolute miracles. We still live in that era, by the way, and those miracles are for us. But they were perhaps a little more prevalent surrounding Paul getting bitten by snakes and not dying. There was miracle healing surrounding him. And so for him to say this, he means that if you guys, you're weak and you're sick, and even some of you are dying prematurely, and the reason is because you're not discerning the body and the blood of Jesus. You're not truly appreciating what was done for you, but if you get an appreciation for it, you will be healed. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As I was preparing this, God told me people are going to get healed. People are going to get healed. There's sickness and disease in bodies of people that are going to hear this message that will be healed. You say, how do you know that? Because God told me. And I believe it. And, and if you're here tonight, you have some type of sickness or disease. I'm not telling you we have magic bread over here that if you eat it, it's going to heal you or that we have magic juice here and that happy juice is going to make you healed. No, I'm telling you that your discernment of the symbolism of the body and the blood will cause you to enter into a realm of covenant in appreciation for that that will break whatever sickness or disease has held you back. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. In other words, ourselves, our physical bodies. If we have greater discernment about a relationship of our physical being coming under the blood of Jesus Christ and benefiting from the bread of life that died for us, we get this, then we will not go into the judgment of weakness, sickness, and premature death. You understand? Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not finally uh, condemned, not be finally condemned with the world. So if we don't appreciate it, his sacrifice is still going to bring you into eternity. But why live without having the fullness of the benefits of life here on earth? So he goes on to what I call the true purpose of the cup. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when you come, I will give further directions. So here what he's saying clearly is, okay, when you come together, do you want to have a meal? He does not mean here that you have to have tiny little wafers and little tiny plastic cups of juice. He means when you come together, have koinonia and fellowship of food. And at that moment that you are lifting that cup and eating that food, remember why you're doing it. That Jesus died for you. And that the blood was shed for you. 
And of course, we do that. And some people may miss it when I'm praying. When I pray for the meals that we have, that is exactly what I'm doing. I'm naming those principles and those things. And we're going to celebrate that tonight in a more ritualistic way, specifically to be more demonstrative concerning that. All of us eat together, uh, not to satiate hunger. Uh, my wife will have food beyond the bread. Some people looking over there and realizing oh, we're going to get skimped out tonight. Man, what happened to the good stuff? Don't worry, we have that. The purpose of sharing the cup is not to get full. The purpose is togetherness. So we gather together to share in the blessings that God pours on us and the things we believe and have in common unify us. We are the community of God. You are my family. You are closer than my family. I spend more time with you than I do with my family. Uh, outside of my wife and my daughter at home. I spend more time with you here at the church and trying. That's why I'm so happy when you come and you're here. I don't like when you're not here because I want to be in your presence. I'm not only a pastor. You just want the church to have people in it. Well, of course, but why? It's because of I want the body of Christ to experience uh, that family togetherness, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, spurring one another on, forming that community and being together. And we have this in common. Understand that each time we partake in the bread and cup, food and drink together, we're celebrating the unity that Jesus has paid for by his own blood and body. The anointing of his spirit flows through that understanding and brings healing and deliverance. These are the five things that we saw. The cup of the will of the Father. Grant that my son sit at your right and your left. I don't know if you can handle the cup that I have. Yeah, we can. All right, maybe. Maybe, but it's not what you think. So understand what it means to have unity with Christ, to take that cup, to live the kind of life that he lived. The contents of the cup are what matters. The ritual itself is not going to do anything for you. It's the discernment of the body and the blood during that ritual. Now, the cup of thanksgiving for the blood. We are grateful for the blood of Jesus. I should sing the blood, the blood, the blood song. I might start slipping that in on you. When you, and you might not like it, but it will be very successful in you thanking God for the blood. But we do sing, oh, the blood of Jesus. It's a beautiful song. The cup of sacrifice. Yeah. When we take that cup, it means that it's time to pay a price for each other, to care about each other, to protect each other, to love each other, and the cup of community so that we all be together in one group. Amen? So what I want to do now is bring over the bread, and uh, um, we have these things ritualistically often referred to as these elements and how we're going to do this is I'm going to have, um, uh, let me have uh, Caleb Matthews come up here with me. Okay, George, you three guys come up here with me. And so uh, this is just grape juice. Uh, I would do wine, but I didn't know who was going to be participating and what their individual convictions would be. And uh, so, but it is good, 100% grape juice, a good representation. It is the fruit of the vine, 100%, the fruit of the vine. There is no additives, no sugars, no anything, only what come uh, through that vine. So um, if you want to, George, start filling some of those cups. And uh, the bread that we have also is more in the tradition of bread that, that would have been used in the time of Christ. Yeah, that's good, just the bottom of that. When we see the 
the stories of the breaking of bread, we see Jesus and the disciples, they broke bread. We know there was a multiplication of that. When Jesus broke bread, it means he took one whole loaf and he broke it first and then passed the pieces on. We see that happen in the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000. Jesus took it, he blessed it, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. And when I bless the bread, I'm going to break it into pieces. And then uh, Caleb, Matthews, and George are going to go to a couple of few people. It should be three each, more or less. Um, and you will break smaller pieces off of your half of bread and just give it to them along uh, with a cup. I guess we can uh, allow, maybe we'll just have two of you with the bread and I'll have uh, George take, take the cups around after he fills them. Does that sound good? It might be easier. So we see the bread, and as we've just studied in the, in the night, that time when Jesus was um, about to die, he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body that was broken. Bread of life. And we thank God, thank God, that a sacrifice was made for us. Jesus, thank you so much for offering your physical body, you, the bread of life, to be broken for us. And indeed, you were broken. You were beaten, spat upon. The hair of your beard was ripped out of your face. You, you suffered. Your body paid a price. You prepared the disciples to understand that, to get the value of the importance of it by breaking bread with them. And so we do that. And Lord, this bread, this bread that we have, uh, we bless it in the name of Jesus. Let this bread be blessed. We're grateful for it as the symbol of your body that was broken for us. We accept that sacrifice. We discern the importance of of your vicarious substitute for us. You are the propitiation, the expiation of our iniquity and our sin. In your physical body, the Father put the iniquities of us all so that you could be broken. And we're grateful. We bless this bread tonight. We break it. Also, we, we share together the cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ. It's so important that we understand how important the blood is, the blood that was sacrificed for us. Jesus, stripes were laid into your back, the cat of nine tails, horrific device made to serrate and tear and rip human flesh to inflict the maximum amount of pain. It opened you up. And the blood poured from you. Blood poured from you. Uh, they, they put nails into your hands and into your feet. And blood flowed out. Blood of the sacrifice. Blood that was given for us. Not just any blood, but perfect blood. All of our blood had been tainted, but your blood had not one thing wrong with it. All of our blood was corrupt, but your blood was pristine and perfect and sinless. The only real, true blood that could be an eternal sacrifice. And as we drink from the cup tonight, we remember, we understand 
how important that blood is. And we say, let that blood wash us. Let that blood be over us tonight. In Jesus' name, you can pass those out. Okay, you can just take your bread and your cup. Just keep thinking, keep thinking and discerning what, what this means. We're grateful, Lord. We're grateful. I feel the presence of Jesus. I feel Jesus looking at us, understanding that we understand what was done. His power is released through that faith. Lord, we thank you for this bread and symbolism of your body that was broken. And as we eat it, we accept the sacrifice that was made for us. Jesus. Jesus. Your blood was shed for us, every drop perfect. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Let it be washed over us today. Let it cleanse us from head to toe. We are grateful for it. We drink from this cup in remembrance and discernment of that blood that was shed for us. In Jesus' name.